Hello, Harje, a Gusgro Kid Maigavis of a Lenyarish, and had a granella shot of Lurni Bellagish. Lamhain, Claire Nuan, a Guslamo Comradi, Galtna, Galgaia, Johnny Dillon. Hello, Johnny. Hello. Now, Johnny might be laughing to himself there because I've just described him as a puckish, mischievous sort of a fellow with a sunny disposition. Oh. Which is fairly accurate, isn't it? That'll do. I would have thought, yep. Yeah. Not bad qualities for a future husband. It's certainly better than being described as a banhintroma crossa, which is a cr- don't laugh now, Johnny, a cranky, hev- heavy-headed woman, or a banyilagantna guara, a loud honking woman. Two heavily derogatory descriptors for the type of woman you should not pursue when looking for a potential wife. Just take note there, Johnny. Julie noted. Yeah. Heaven forbid. No, much better than to go with a ban morhira ban wenlawakanta, or a woman who is sanguine and loyal like a sheep. now this is simply by way of introduction to some of the themes we'll be looking at in this month's episode one chosen to coincide with the arrival of saint valentine's day hooray hooray love and magic in irish folk tradition we should note that there will be no red roses no chocolates no romantic weekends in paris or dodgy cards from your mother instead we'll have martyred saints did you get one of those johnny (laughs) a martyred saint yes no cards from your mother (laughs) masquerading no never i don't know what you're talking about (laughs) Instead, we'll have martyred saints, sexist proverbs and marriage guidance, as you saw above there, abductions, elopements, love matches, dowry settlements, stressed shrovetide singletons, horning, which is not what you think, and <laughs> love luck and charms, beats a box of chocolates any day. So sit with us for an hour and immerse yourselves in some of the perhaps lesser known customs and practices observed in folk tradition as they pertain to love, relationships and marriage. Casting a spotlight on older domestic structures and social psychologies, it's a theme, although although introduced with a kind of light touch there, did have a huge resonance in the lives of our parents and grandparents, colouring their social and economic standing and marking key transitions, or not as the case may be, in the life cycle of the individual and the domestic family unit. So we'll kick things off then by looking at love as it was represented in the early literary tradition before moving on to look at more solid expressions of these themes in folk tradition in our customs and practices. So I might hand over to you. Why not? And get us started. There's a, yeah, there's an enormous amount of stuff to go through. And uh, I suppose in the early literature to start as well, um, Kenneth Jackson in his book, A Celtic Insanity, which is sort of my absolute favourite books ever. He talks about love. He He has different sections of the early Irish literature. He has translations of kind of early Irish poetry and bits of Cornish and kind of Breton, all sorts of stuff. But he has a section on love in that, but he notes that in the early literature, there's actually very little by way of reference to love as far as the poetry is concerned. But there are certain kind of narratives. The most notable maybe would be the dream of, of Angus. Um, Angus has this kind of dream where this beautiful woman appears from the night and he's sick. He's, he's pronounced as kind of being, being ill by the, 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 a doctor, basically. And he has to go and find this woman. But the, the adventure is more so about his kind of how he wins her, how he finds her. Okay. But there's less there's less concern with the psychological impacts and effects of love itself. But you see that then come into the literature later on with the kind of romance uh, genres of even the likes of in, in the kind of medieval period or even with the kind of Norman influence. Mm. And you see things like in the French tradition, Parzival, that links into the kind of Arthurian romances and all that sort of stuff. And so they kind of, there are narratives, I suppose, that have those kind of features in them in the early literature later on. But certainly in folk tradition, as far as shandos and, and songs and stuff like that, mm. every other song is about being a broken-hearted mess, basically. It is. Love it's, betrayed, it's, yes. love Un- unrequited, love lost. Love lost, and just the whole, the whole gamut. So it's not to say that it's kind of, it's absent from folk tradition, but in the early literature, it's Kenneth Jackson makes the... the, the um, the observation that it doesn't feature in, in the way that you might think. There's an enormous amount of nature poetry or um, or descriptions of kind of love affairs and so on and so forth, but not the kind of romantic literature that you might that you might think. It's love is disease, isn't it, in the old literature? Yeah, in, in many in many instances, yeah. That's like that's the dream of, of wandering Angus then and, and that's that's kind of very much his um he's he's sick and he's kind of deranged basically because of this woman who's appeared from the dream until he's able to find her it's nice though in that sense that we have that proverb um still to this day that um galeran re naliesen livna so that love is an illness um, that can't be cured by herbs or the only cure for love is marriage oh well there you go <laughs> um, we've set our theme now we have. anti-romantic we have but <laughs> the um the, the the i suppose the most notable maybe of the kind of of the the 
genres, maybe in Irish tradition or tales particularly, would be Dearmut and Grania, which is part of the Fenian cycle, which people might be familiar with, where there's a couple, there's a, there's a well, basically there's this young woman, Grania, is meant to be married off to Fionn McCool, the leader of the Fianna. The older man. At this stage, he's, he's a kind of elderly man. He's had several wives already. His last wife has died, and he's about to be married to, to Grania. She's not particularly impressed to be married to a man who's as old as old enough to be her grandfather. So she um, puts a guess, a kind of a taboo on Dearmouth, one of these younger warriors of the Fianna, and binds him to kind of steal away with her, basically. And so they take off and hide in the woods in Athlone, and all sorts of kind of adventures befall them, basically. Um, where the the Fian and Fionn are trying to hunt them down, mm-hmm. and at the end they kind of they have, they're, they're everything is kind of resolved and they have a family together and so on, but at the end of it, at the end of the narrative, um, Diarmid goes off hunting with Fionn and the others, and he's gored by a a bull or a, a boar I think while they're hunting, and Fionn had the capability of, of the the water that he would that was drunk from his hands had healing properties. From Finsands. From Finsands, yeah. And as he was going to give the water to Dearmouth, he let it slip out of his head. It poured through his fingers twice, I guess, the bitterness from the previous mm, kind of... Could be. And then at the third time, he held it and drank to him. But it was too late. Dearmouth was dead. And he also had the, he had the, the ball strike at the love spot. Oh, was yes. Given to him. He was hunting in the woods one night and he met the personification of youth. And they slept together and then she gave him this love spot which she put in his head and then anyone who looked at it fell in love with him. Mm, that's a very that. common motif in this, all yeah. the stories that we have. Well, many of the stories we have related and to that the that would couple. have um, said then that that influenced the later medieval romance or that, that as, as it appeared um, with Tristan and mm, Isolde Tristan and, and Isolde and so on. Which that Irish princess, she, she was stolen away to, to Cornwall in the course of that narrative. But Chapel Lizard apparently is named after her that she might have been buried there. Oh really? I didn't yeah, know that. apparently, yeah, yeah, in Dublin there. Um, but although there, the, there are kind of the, the, I think the earliest reference to Dermot the Grania is in the Book of Leinster in the twelfth century. Um, but in the early literature, you have these fantastic kind of descriptions of of love poetry and so on later on, but doesn't really feature until the medieval that you have this kind of romantic love poetry mm. as such that seems maybe to have come in um, from other kind of European sources or from the Normans and that sort of courtly love theme basically. Mm. Um, but it's important to bear in mind those well, in folk tradition, in the singing tradition and songs and so on, it's absolutely it's it's racked with broken hearted love songs everywhere. Everywhere, as, as is way. as is the way. Yeah. Um, I was going to read a little bit here that I found now. It's um, by translation, but it just shows the, I suppose, the representation of love through physical beauty, um, in those early mm-hmm. old Irish sagas and stories. And we have one called Togal Bridne Dajaraga. And it's incredible how he describes the woman who catches his eye. So he goes into extensive detail where he describes every facet of her um, being. But I'll just... Um, the descriptive stuff is just amazing in the early poetry. It's incredible. incredible. That's the thing that, yeah. Oh, my God. So just for a kind of a quick um, little snapshot for brevity here. There she was, undoing her hair to wash it, with her arms out through the sleeve holes of her smock. White as the snow of one night were the two hands, soft even... Soft even and red as foxglove were the two clear, beautiful cheeks. Dark as the back of a stag beetle were the two eyebrows. Like a shower of pearls with the teeth in her head. Blue as hyacinth were the eyes. Red as roan berries the lips. Very high, smooth and soft white the shoulders. Clear, white and lengthy the fingers. Long were the hands. White as the foam of the wave was the flank slender, long, tender, smooth, soft as wool. Polished and warm, sleek and white were the two thighs. Round and small, hard and white, the two knees. Short and white and rule straight, the two shins. Because God knows the shins are what does it. Check those shins. <laughs> Check those shins. Here's one amazing one from the, from the 16th or 17th century called Happy For You, Blind Man. And this guy is, he's had enough, it seems. <clears throat> he's fairly human. He's saying, happy for you, blind man, who see nothing of women. Uh, if you saw what I see, you would be sick even as I am. Would God I had been blind before I saw her curling hair. Her white-flanked, splendid, snowy body. Ah, my life is distressful to me. I pitied blind men until my peril grew beyond all sorrow. I have changed my pity, though pitiful, to envy. I am ensnared by the maid of the curling locks. Alas for him who has seen her, and alas for him who does not see her every day. Alas for those trapped in her love, and alas for those who escape. Alas for him who goes to meet her, and alas for him who does not meet her. Alas for him who is with her, and alas for him who is not with her. Ilium Rua there. Oh. Shapers. The descriptive stuff is really incredible. It is. It really is. And you can see it filter down. But even just that, when you said um, being ensnared by the curls mm. of her hair, that's mm-hmm. like, 
Yeats's Black Penny. Um, What's that? I can't remember it now off the top of my head, mm. but it's lovely. But if you Google Yeats, The Black Penny, it's a beautiful um, little love poem. So that's us looking at the literary tradition and how it's filtered down. And it makes sense now probably just to narrow our focus slightly into the more practical aspects of love in kind of in society and um, perhaps with uh, an emphasis on marriage in society and marriage in Irish society which is a whole other kettle of fish. Now traditional rites of passage be they ceremonial, ritualistic, religious, biological they've been known to exist in societies throughout human history marking as they do the passage from one social status to another or from one biological state to another so the transition from childhood to puberty to adulthood you've got seven sacraments you've got childbirth and one of the big ones is marriage now these i suppose we could just say a note it was we spoke about this gentleman yesterday um johnny arnold van gennep mm. who apparently actually coined the phrase rites of passage he did which i did not know is, is that actually accurate le rite passage or something yeah it was his book 1901 or 04 or something yeah i think it was 1909 you'll find johnny. oh god yes i'll just right angry letters <laughs> incorrect <laughs> But um, he was very interested in, I suppose, the distribution of these rights and kind of the interpretation, interpretation of them as a class of phenomena um, in their own right. And he was a folklorist, which I didn't know, which again, just a high five for the folklorist. Mm. But he held that these rites of or passage consist of three distinguishable consecutive elements, separation, transition and reincorporation. But marriage again is one such rite of passage as we describe it in Ireland, seen as a clear marker in the transition to adulthood. Because, and again, I hadn't really thought about this much growing up, but that age isn't necessarily a marker mm. for the transition in Ireland. It's more the the events in life that kind of mark transitions sometimes in social status. So a married male, for example, of 25 could be considered a man because he was married, while an unmarried man of 40 was still considered a boy, and equally so for a female. And there's awful, the more you read about it, it just seems so sad in how people could be overlooked and treated so badly because of the sense that they had somehow failed the social contract mm -hmm. in not getting married, which was seen as <coughs> the norm and to be any way other or outside this infrastructure and this kind of framework that society had set down, you were seen as... Um, failing, basically. Failing, yeah. yeah. And it's just, just awful. And we'll come to kind of more of this um, social disapprobation and I suppose this social unease that people faced when they didn't adhere to these norms. But, and even Kevin O'Donoghue, who was our um, ethnologist here in the department, he speaks of an, an example. The field work. Trip. Yes, yeah. of going with his students to speak to an informant, an older man. Marcel Critton's son, Sean Critton. Is that who it was? Yeah. And he took, I imagine there was a mix of girls and boys, but the girls, he noticed after a while that um, the informant had kind of taken one aside and was giving her more attention mm. and kind of speaking to her more kind of confidently and confidentially. He was chatting away intently yeah. in the corner to her and the rest were kind of sent away. Yeah. Having to be occupied by poor Kevin. And it was because she was married and he viewed her differently to mm. the other girls who could have been the same age but were unmarried. Yeah. Isn't that Yeah. It's amazing. That's that's the primary um the idea of even the coming of age of being twenty one or eighteen mm -hmm. or something has is as a legalistic concept has no ritual or traditional value in, in the Irish context in the sense that um, that you've suddenly kind of reached ridged some marker and like you mentioned there about about the idea of unmarried boys mm. of 50 or unmarried girls of 50 there was mm. the um, another account I think it was by Kevin Danner he described it as well of a rural politician a rural TD um, in Parliament in the 1940s I think uh, who was kind of pilloried and mocked by his colleagues for talking about the plight of unmarried boys of 40 and over in the country or no sorry yeah no yeah the plight of unmarried boys of 40 and over to in, the, in the country wherever in his, in his home parish and so on and what he meant was just that 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 these were boys not not men yeah. but it didn't matter what age they were that manhood isn't a temporal thing it's a social mm. thing or womanhood likewise so that and then these figures kind of become part of the the, the, the comedy of life and are kind of mocked in many ways and where tradition then kind of I suppose applies it, a certain pressure onto individuals to say this isn't how the ideal is meant to is meant to behave yeah. you know um, so in that sense yeah that it's not so much like I said when you turn 21 now you're a man or now you're a woman 
it's when you're married no matter the age that's that's when you get the full status and for van geneth and the ritual it's important to bear in mind as well when thinking about rituals rituals are specifically transformative practices mm. in that you step into a phase as a and you step out of it as the ritual as b and that ritual is the liminal kind of component where you're you're in between mm. and that's where all the kind of the strange literally that's where the magic happens as it were and that's the kind of the strange in between i suppose space literally the, the kind of threshold space that a person enters into but the idea is that these to be traditionally recognized as a man or a woman in your society it's a communal thing i can go out onto the front steps of the university here and kind of boldly declare myself an opal astra or whatever but yeah. no one's going to heed that mm. because it doesn't matter that that's what you identify as it's what how did, how is how are you viewed um in the context of the community traditionally and it's the same with the process of betrothal and then into marriage these individuals go from one state into another in the eyes of the community and now they're kind of fully fledged members of it so that the, the young married man of 20 and his his older uncle of 50 who's unmarried is a, a boy to mm. be sent around doing menial tasks basically because he hasn't taken the plunge as it were and you see a lot of those um there's great symbolism around the events that mark these transitions as well just to represent that kind of whether you physically enter one door and then you physically exit another mm. or you you come alone but you leave together mm. or um, don't co- don't come home the way you came exactly or things like that. Yeah. again marking that you go in as one but you change you come out having changed in some way to represent yeah and even the, for example the thing the whole context of the, the groom not seeing the bride or there's in some way shape or form there's the right of separation prior to the to the ritual itself mm-hmm. where the the individuals are removed from each other and then they're reincorporated in a new phase together mm-hmm. so there's this kind of liminal liminal kind of Again, things that you just take take for granted. Like, well, wh- why are we? What are we actually kind of doing here? I suppose. And Van Gennep makes a point as well that as you go down the scale of kind of civilized societies into more traditional societies, you'll see that the sacred takes central center stage over the secular, basically. Mm-hmm. And for it's it's those strange in between periods or when when a person is in the home in the communal setting of the home, they're in the world of the profane, in the world of the secular, whatever. When you step outside of the home and travel to a foreign place, or you're among strangers and so on, now you're in the world of, of the sacred, of the unknown, of the dangerous, and so on. Mm. And a lot of these rituals treat people in in that certain sense that they have to be excluded from the community for a while and then slowly reincorporated again, and but in new, in a new state basically. Um, and marriage, I suppose, is a primary concern, and the ritual aspects of the life cycle in, in human condition as well are, are a primary and fundamental concern. And again, this points to the, the fundamental nature of the importance of folk tradition, that it relates to those areas of human life that people have these extreme concerns about, Yes. i.e. birth or death or transition to the afterlife or marriage or betrothal or economic concerns, pregnancy, conception, whatever. Um, so you see that at marriage, there's an enormous amount of kind of customary tradition attached to this. Mm. These, these ritual practices basically so it's a hugely stressful time in someone's life the more I read I had because obviously if I never get married I'll be fine with that and there's no sense that people would look at me differently because so many people choose either not to get married um, and just remain with their partner um, for a variety of reasons Whereas reading some of the recollections here, like you see women speaking about, oh, by the time I was 20, I really felt clocks ticking, you know, and this Mm. kind of sense of um, kind of personal pressure that they placed on themselves, but also this kind of from parents, from the wider family, from broader society and their community. The culture applies pressure to you, yeah. A huge, huge weight on their their shoulders. Mm. And there was one woman who was speaking about um, feeling when she turned, she was 20 or 21, and saw her friends getting married she really f- felt this weight of pressure and within the year she was married hmm. and you kind of wonder is that because she set out on a mission and you kind of wonder to yourself you know what decisions are, are coloring your choices you know hmm. and are you making the right choices for you as a person or are you being um, really railroaded in, in some way this by is society. a different view I suppose. well i guess you're always being railroaded by society so in some way we're always kind of beaming and transmitting to one another what are we meant to do hmm. or not do and tradition applies a framework and a pressure and it kind of sluices you into it. Like, right, you need to, you need to yeah. maintain and carry on now, you know. And that if everyone was to, I suppose, fragment in this absolutely atomized individualism or whatever, mm-hmm. then there would be no community or kind of anything to, to, to manifest or continue itself or whatever. But the, the, I suppose the, the, the most glaring maybe difference in the modern context really, but to, again, to look at marriage in a traditional context is that 
for a great many people, uh, marriage wasn't just a preserve of the two individuals. It was a, it was a wider kind of communal concern, basically. It was, it was the families coming together. There were dowries involved. And there was were... land to be transmitted. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And so that was, it doesn't really matter at the end of the day entirely. I mean, it does in, in part, I suppose, what you feel about it. I suppose also you have the family is trying to maintain it, its land or, or expand on it or expand or maintain their kind of economic concerns whatever their so good name their good name is the other huge thing and then to try and to try and marry with a certain economic parity or someone who'll suit or another family with a good name or whatever and, and not to marry beneath you and all sorts of stuff there's a kind of there's a lot to navigate basically in, in a in a traditional context I suppose that we see with even that expresses that then in the matchmakers and so on these figures who used mm. to go around and kind of conduct these things and we'll actually come to the Shrovetide um, mm. tradition more and um, clearly now shortly because that's something that this is the time of year Shrovetide from the 6th of January actually it's it's later I was reading it's it's the end of January it's this some what's the word some Latin word for the 70th day or something Shrove starts at the was period it? when it's uh, within over 70 but less than 60 days from Easter on that Sunday Shrove starts and then ends on Lent and then it ends at Lent Okay. And and since I think it was a fifteen eighty six or fifteen sixty three or something, eleventh of November either way. The ah oh, yes, the it was a Tuesday. Well, do you remember it? <laughs> right, there was the, I remember eleventeenth eleventeenth the the eleventh of November fifteen eighty six or something. There was the the decree of Trent or the Council of Trent, mm. and <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. no, the Council of Trent put they there was um they put uh. They barred as like an ecclesiastical prohibition on what was it the the solemn celebration of the matrimony of the sacrament of matrimony mm. in the penitential season of Lent. Yes, this is the thing that you like you cannot. And they also in in chapter ten of same decree are at length or at pains to describe the the fact that this isn't a recent innovation of the church. It's an it's an always been this way that during this forty day period of Lent, um, no marriages can take place, mm. and but Trove appears from the end of January um, going into February then that's the period just beforehand and so in folk tradition Kevin Denner again says that his view is that it's kind of it's become recognised that there's a prohibition during this penitential season of Lent so then the correct time to marry is just before that penitential but season but that's a misinterpretation that isn't it it seems that, that that's kind of now the early law if we go back to the Breton law tracks they say that, that the time for marriage was in November which makes sense from an agricultural kind mm -hmm. of point of view but from the more I suppose in the medieval on and the more recent folk tradition the, after this the, the, this decree from Trent or whatever, 1500s, um, it was that the penitential kind of season of Lent bars people from, from engaging in the, the sacrament, of, sacrament of matrimony, so they have to do so just beforehand. And that is this time now of Shrove and this kind of period. Shrove meaning to confess, to shrive or shrieve or whatever, mm. as this kind of period um, prior to this 40-day period and the 40-day fasting and uh, period of asceticism and so is interesting itself that appears in in, in a in variety of of, um, of wisdom traditions religions and so on hinduism and buddhism as well this kind of 40-day um period of fasting or whatever um but the yeah now for shrove now is the time for for people to marry mm -hmm. this is the traditional time i have a piece here of um lilo holton in 1980 lilo holton is from the inner city in dublin and she's describing she's describing lent when she was growing up what it was like um, and how severe it was, and how there were no marriages at, uh, at that time. And was Lent very strict? Lent was very strict. There was no butter, no milk, no milk, no butter, no meat of any kind, no eggs. The whole of Lent? The whole of Lent. No butter on your bread, and then it would be the same then for the only plain tea, you know, as mm -hmm. usual. Mm -hmm. And would people do other penances as well? Oh yes, they used to go off faster now. And um, used people get married in Lent or? No, no marriage in Lent. And the marriage at that time was of a Sunday. Mm -hmm. They were of a Sunday and then they were cut out. Mm -hmm. And the burials was of a Sunday mm -hmm. and that's cut out. Mm -hmm. But would people get engaged before Lent or anything Oh, like before that? Lent and married before Lent. Mm -hmm. Yes, they get married and engaged before Lent. Mm -hmm. And would people ever say that um, if you didn't get married before Lent, you had to wait another year? Well, no, no, once Lent was up, then you were free. Mm -hmm. 
you are free. Mm-hmm. Uh, these two are coming along, mm-hmm. and then they get married. So that's Nilo Holden describing just the yeah, Lent prohibitions, no marriage, but then in May, they commence again. Oh, I see. And mm. Shrove Tuesday was apparently a big day for weddings, that um, it would be very popular in communities to mm. see couples rush into the altar. Pancake Tuesday, mm. which is our, again, version of um, Mardi Gras. Fat Tuesday that they have elsewhere. It's the it's the this is the celebratory feast prior to the period of fasting. Mm. One last hurrah. So exactly. To speak. All, so in the house, all of the all of the perishable items are used up. All the eggs are used up. All mm. the butter and eggs and whatever. Like Lilo was in there, there, you couldn't have any of this stuff. Milk and so on. And you make zillions of pancakes. And Which then, interestingly, can be used for divination. And you yes, had a, a they can funny hilariously. Example. Well, there's just this. It's just I just thought it was hilarious. The description here of Shrove Tuesday. In Halls, Ireland, Mr. and Mrs. Hall, who travelled around um, every parish up and down the country, the amazing volumes that you can you can kind of read about their descriptions of their travels. But they're also of interest to folklorists because they describe the varying traditions and customs that pertain to, to the time. This describes um, the tossing of pancakes and marriage divination for one lucky girl and one unlucky girl, basically. So it says, The family group and the boys and girls of the neighbours gather around the fireside and each in turn tries his or her skill in tossing the pancake. The tossing of the first is always allotted to the eldest unmarried daughter of the host, who performs the task not altogether without trepidation, for much of her luck during the year is supposed to depend on her good or ill success in the occasion. She tosses it, and usually so cleverly as to receive it back again without a ruffle on its surface, on its reverse, in the pan. Congratulations upon her fortune go round, and another makes the effort. Perhaps this is a sad mischance. The pancake is either not turned or falls among the turf ashes. The unhappy maiden is then doomed. She can have no chance of marrying for a year at least, while the girl who has been lucky is destined to have her pick of the boys as soon as she likes. The cake she has tossed, she is once again called upon to share, and cutting it into many slices as there are guests, she hands one to each. Sometimes the mother's wedding ring has been slipped into the batter out of which this first cake is made, and the person who receives the slice in which it is contained is not only to be first married, but is to be doubly lucky in the matter of husband or wife. I just... that sentence when the unhappy maiden is then doomed and she stares at the pancake in the ashes <laughs> and the crowd goes silent and everyone furrowed brows it's and scornfully looking it's fantastic it's brilliant but that's true and again even the period that there's we are now at a liminal phase that you know you can't just go make pancakes on some random tuesday in january and uh, and divine your future husband mm-hmm. therefrom it has to be at this particular period it relates to Shrove, and, and this is the kind of the exact um, uh, time, basically. But Shrove was the, was the traditional kind of marrying season in Ireland. It's true. And um, we see there's, it's one of those, that's, we have a questionnaire on Shrove, Easter, um, customs and practices, with a huge trove of material that's well worth investigating for those who are interested in calendar custom and practices relating to marriage, for example. But one of them was... It was a busy time of year, as you can imagine, for those looking and hoping to get married. But we have some lovely recollections in the archives of fairs, for example, which would have been mm. popular locations for the arrangement of marriages or as well as that um, elopements for those who wanted to get married, but perhaps might have been, I suppose, undermined by the wishes of the family or the community and so wanted to overcome this or maybe wanted to overcome a match that had been made for one of the couples elsewhere so I found a lovely one from my neck of the woods in Donegal where they speak about um, or the runaway fair which is lovely I'd never heard of it before on the 6th of January oh that's where I got the 6th of January on the 6th of January apparently now this as told by Neil O'Doohy who was 68 it does oh yeah in 1942 he was giving this piece of information to Sean O'Hoy so he speaks about the remembrance of the runaway fair on the 6th of January, where many couples would meet at the fair and elope. And many of them went to Scotland. So many so, apparently, from Ulster, that Port Patrick in Dumfries and Galloway in the southwest became known as the Gretna Green of, um, or the Gretna Green for Irish eloping couples, mm. which um, just shows the, the sheer number of people who must have emigrated. Mm. But elopements were um, very popular at this time. But also... Whereas some would have eloped to perhaps Scotland and beyond. And sadly, some are told that never came back just because the level of um, dislike amongst the families Mm -hmm. and that it would have been really frowned upon. So they had literally severed the the apron strings and all ties and Mm. never returned. But for many, this 
elopement simply showed their commitment to each other and so the families in time agreed to the marriage and the, the practicalities were taken care of and one of the, the great monikers that I came across was the night of the bottles or eating the mudjal which was the night that the contract for marriage was agreed and that the families were going to permit this marriage to go ahead that they would um, once it was all settled they would crack open the bottles hmm. and have a much merriment Proper and order. consumption of food and drink that'll do so yeah elopements were, were big at this time I met a woman in, in the archive here a couple of years ago a good few years ago who was doing research and her uh, mother had run away from a match made for her oh my god in I don't remember what part of the country and she met her who the man who would become her husband this woman's father on the boat going to England that day but they oh, never imagine. came back yeah isn't it was. heartbreaking though when you think it's about away it and that, that's, that's the end of it yeah and I suppose the figure as well as you mentioned there about sometimes these elopements not being recognised by the family mm. the huge thing I suppose to, to to understand within the context of Irish tradition that the major kind of social one of the major social divisions maybe in the context of, of, of marriage at least is between the farming classes and then the landless labourers because of the the, the economic concerns of land and inheritance and so on that even for smaller struggling farmers were were a preoccupation mm. that the wedding had to be arranged with an individual who had a certain parity in that regard so Kevin Danaher again describes this really interestingly where there's a certain amount of crossover where you could have maybe the daughter of a struggling farmer but who has inherited money from a rich aunt in America or something yes. could maybe marry a stronger farmer because the economic side can kind of prop it up and so there's a certain amount of parity between the two. And she can actually prop herself up as well. I loved hearing that women who, um, because they were responsible for the dairy products and the dairy mm. work in their farms, they would have little sidelines of selling eggs. Eggs and or butter and so on. Making clothes and whatnot. Yeah. So she would kind of... Um, that was her money. That was her money yeah. in order to marry up. Yeah, and, and actually what Danher notes as well, he says that it's the process of modernisation in many ways actually removed that from women mm. that when it then um say the milk went to the creameries and, and the eggs were being taken and so on it was that a matter for the men again yeah it, that that local industry or that kind of that division of, of labor i suppose was removed you know because again in the traditional context i suppose you have set uh, divisions of labor and work on the land between men and women where again in the modern context those things are often reduced to kind of theoretical abstractions whatever mm. Aronsberg, conrad m Aronsberg did his study of the irish countryman i have that here somewhere um where there's the description between the, the 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 farmer is describing, I suppose it's it's looking at the kind of the complementary complementary dichotomy basically between between uh, husband and wife in this sense. This is a farmer describing. He says, "Here's something I want to tell you, and you can put it in your head and take it back with you." The small farmer in Ireland has to have an intelligent wife, or he won't last long. He may do for a few years, but after that he can't manage. You take children's clothes. If she knows how to buy material and make the clothes, she saves a lot of money. And there are a thousand ways an intelligent woman makes money. Here his wife interrupted him and asked, What about the tillage? That's all right, he went on. But if it wasn't for the woman, the farmer wouldn't last. And when he's getting a wife for one of his sons, he should look to a house where there has been an industrious and intelligent woman because she has taught her daughters how to work. And that is what is needed. So this is the kind of... Concerns. The concerns that, that, they're, that they're, I suppose, that they're ultimately dealing with. And the other thing, when the match was made... And say the 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 male in the f on the farm, for example, who was going to inherit the farm, living with his mother and father in that farm, when he married, his wife would come and live with him, mm -hmm. and that also meant then that the man and woman of the house, the parents of that house, now were disengaging from it and taking a back seat, and now the new woman in the house was the woman of the house, yeah, and and he was the the party, whatever. Now often you then had the parents kind of whispering in the ears and so on. And, mm. and, but you can imagine the discord or strife that might manifest in that kind of situation like as well. It's like a Martin McDonough play waiting to happen. Yes, indeed. It's just yeah. this potential so, darkness. But, but as far as the kind of farming classes were concerned, they could marry to varying degrees. If there was a certain amount of economic party within their own classes, they could marry maybe even to craftspeople or market people or business people in the local area, whatever. But the one thing that they could never do that was never to be known was to marry beneath them mm. to the class of landless labourer. And and the landless labourers, of course, were free from the, the, the obligations of economic concerns and hard bargainings and dowries and so on mm -hmm. and so forth. They could, they could move up, go to where there was work, build a cabin and marry freely and have a family and so on. And there was a huge population explosion in the 19th century on account of just that, um, this kind of the class of landless labourer. But the thing I was, I was quite surprised by in one of Danaher's writings, he describes um, a small farmer who marries a teacher which I would have thought, you know, there's a kind of a certain overlap in the kind of the, the class of people, as it were. Yes. But that this 
woman's the teacher's family were of a laboring kind of class whatever oh so and even though she was a teacher yeah and the fa- and the farming family refused to ever recognize the marriage ever and that was just the end of that relationship so they had a family and everything else but it wasn't it wasn't recognized because of the so now the 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 inheritance has to go somewhere else the person is disinherited basically and that's it so there's an economic concern mm, there are familial so. concerns there's a question of kind of honor and the good name of the family and into that then the, the idea of the figure of the matchmaker yes appears. lovely segue johnny thanks it worked we'll finally crack this business we will we will you know um but you no know, matchmaking is a huge huge um tradition and practice that we, we can't overlook when we're discussing mm. love and relationships and that they would have played a part. We've still got the Listun Marna um, matchmaking Yes, to this festival. day that goes on. Yes, and as you know, on a monthly basis, I do a bit of an informal survey with the girls in the house, and one of my flatmates has been, and she finds it very unusual and very hardcore. They're, they mean business. I would imagine so, yeah. Yeah, so it, don't underestimate Listun Marna, which is still going with great spirit and success. But this figure of the matchmaker, um, Kevin Danaher, is keen to... I suppose, make clear and kind of distinguish between the informal friend. Mm, there are who, two types. Yes, yeah. exactly. Which sometimes we forget because we just have this Hollywood figure or the figure in John B. Keane's The Matchmaker. Mm. But we could have an informal friend um, of the couples who would kind of help, what's the word, the social lubrication that yeah. was involved. And then we have the professional matchmaker, this kind of um, hireling who was concerned with matters of the transition of land and identifying yeah. knowing everyone in the community knowing who was of marrying age who would work who would not as johnny was saying the economic concerns that were prevalent at the time and he'd do that for a fee he would that? indeed not the worst way to make a living mm. bringing joy to the world um but interestingly enough we have a very substantial questionnaire here in the archive mm. which runs to th- seven pages and is probably one of the longest questionnaires I've seen. As in, the questionnaire itself is seven pages long. Yes, with... Good read. And exactly, and with multiple, multiple questions. And just to kind of give you a flavour, um, in your part of the country, are matches made today for farmers' sons and daughters much as they were 50 years ago? Mm. What factors are likely to set in motion the process of matchmaking? When um, Does it often happen that the boy who is to succeed the land marries before he gets possession? Does it frequently happen that one son stays in the land, not because he wants to, but because the feeling that somebody must stay to look after the old people? When a marriage is being arranged, is it customary for a written settlement to be made? And on and on and on it goes into every aspect of the matchmaking process. The role of the matchmaker, the economies of the dowry, the transition of land, the um, impact on the family unit. And it's given how far we've moved away from these practices to have this trove of information is incredibly valuable and because it's open um, for public consultation you're Mm. welcome to come in at any point to have a look it was compiled and issued in 1956 by Sean Sullivan our um, archivist and it was done on behalf of Dr Kenneth Connell of Queen's University Belfast Mm. who was doing research on the topic at the time but it it just really paints the picture of how matches work of matchmaker going to um the, the home of the, the bride-to-be mm. working with the father to ascertain or to get get his consent whether the match was a good one and whether it met that and to bargain know. a dowry exactly yeah. and the dowry is a big issue that we come to look at as to what the wife would bring to the marriage mm. and it was usually a case of goods or money or land cattle, or... cattle. and this is the, one of the things i loved in my research was um, it was a very lucky woman who got a milking cow as part of her diary and you can actually see in one parish how this cow moves around over the period of a few years wow. because say for example if I married say if you had an older brother so I would marry him and bring the cow with me but then your older sister would get married hmm. and so she might take the same cow and go to the, her house oh, I see, and right. on no and on way. it goes and this poor cow just settling in Trapesing and then around. off she goes again <laughs> <laughs> but isn't it fascinating that's fantastic there's um, Patrick Kennedy, the, the Wexford uh, writer, he, he in the 19th century was making these collections that he describes the the experience, I suppose, or the setup basically of the, not so much the kind of the hireling matchmaker that you mentioned, but mm. the, the friendly family friend. Yes. Who acts as the best man uh, on behalf of the, the kind of the aspirant, say. Mm. And he describes the accidentally on purpose meeting these families and so on. And then they're going into a, a tavern. So... 
Kennedy describes here he's, the, the scene set out basically between the couple, the prospective couple and the families. He says, were we, to, were we to enter the comfortable little tavern in Back Lane in about an hour, we should be greeted by a strong odour of lemon punch or mulled beer and find the black man and the seniors at one table. The black man is the best man, the, the, the matchmaker. Okay. That's his nickname. Talking and drinking and no one anyway particular about using a separate tumbler and probably Margaret and John, this is the prospective couple, at another table, he doing his best to make himself agreeable and prevail on her to take a glass of, his, a glass of punch or to take a sip out of his tumbler so that it might be sweetened for him. If she can be prevailed on so far, he immediately applies his lips to the same part of the glass touched by hers, and considerable progress is made. Meanwhile, a friendly spirit hovers over the other table, and many dialats are uttered and held strunk, and many times hands grasped across the table. In most cases, all that is attempted at this chance, kind of quote-unquote, meeting, is the establishment of a good understanding between the families and the commencement of a liking on the part of the young people. So then they'd kind of, they'd go away, and then after that, you'd have to have members of the family mm. go to her say parents go to her father or the two fathers meet and they start to try and strike a bargain okay. basically and they, they talk about the dowry and the eco- economics of the whole thing <laughs> so it's not just a singular kind of romantic process it's a broader no. social process and there's a broader thing at, at play I have a recording here from a man recorded by Jim Delaney or one of the, the full time collectors this was recorded in Athlone in, in Roscommon in 1961 um, and this is a man called Thomas Kelly and he's describing matchmaking at a fair uh, and then, then this this kind of supper to strike the bargain. He then goes on to tell a a, um, a joke which I've removed from now, so it's not to scandalise the more delicate listener. Censorship, Johnny. Yes, indeed. <laughs> well, in all the days, a man looking for a wife to join in the affair. The yeah. parents would meet. Yes, yeah. Now, if this man wanted a woman, his father met another old man that he knew, and if he had a daughter suitable, at least he thought she was suitable, to arrange. To make a match. Mm. Now, in a great many cases, the man that was married might never see the wife until the day he married her. And what he wanted at the time, he got a few bob of money, it was alright. Now, the supper was held in the bride's house. Before the wedding. Before the wedding, a week beforehand. Now, he brought his relatives along. The defender's case, more than anything else, he brought his uncle or brother along, you see, and they made a hard bargain for the fortune. Yeah. The divide of five pounds and ten pounds and so forth, you see. Yeah. And he got his money there, you see, and they arranged for the day they'd be married. Mm. So whatever woman comes to the church, now he married her and he couldn't have make nothing about it. So that's the, the going to the fairs, making the match and so on, but it shows the kind of, I suppose, what was common practice the country over. Um, as far as kind of these practices are concerned. Mm. There's a lovely reference from Mayo actually where they mention Enan O'Gogarney or the Fair of Whispers, which I just think is a wonderfully mm. drawn image of these families and fathers more often than not um, negotiating and mm. undertaking um, these machinations to kind of match up sons and daughters. Mm. Yeah, so the, the Fairs of Whispers. Mm. Lovely, but um, one of the other things, kind of for the sake of rounding the circle of matchmaking, elopements, something else that perhaps is lesser known are these marriage by abductions or marriage by mm. capture. Not one I'd recommend, Johnny, mm-hmm. with the old um, law and order obsession that we have at the moment. <laughs> but, obsession, indeed. indeed. <laughs> but yeah, so this was the thing as apparently up until the mid nineteenth century, into like the you kind know, of eighteen fifties or so, which I find remarkable that women could be um, stolen from the safety and security of their homes mm. by these kind of local Lotharios who had taken a, a fancy to them. Now, sometimes it would be voluntary and consensual in the sense that the woman had wanted to be um, married to this man. This thing I didn't hear, so that they, she wanted to force her parents' hand. Yeah, almost. in some way. Now, again, I can't speak to this personally, mm. but the literature that I've been reading and those that I trust as sources speak of this. Um, like it was a plot between a couple? Yes, um, exactly. Because the thing is, and this, I suppose, makes sense to a certain degree, once she had spent the night um, in his home, mm. and, and she would always apparently be taken care of very well, but it was somehow, even though nothing necessarily would have happened like, physically between them, she would have been somehow viewed as being tainted somehow of family, kind of. yeah having spent the night with this man and so it was as you said seen as a way to kind of force the parents hand to say well she might not get another offer now so we may as well agree mm. and so one of the Kerry references speaks about um the, the families more often than not agreeing to the marriage and kind of settling down for the to kind of agree on the diaries and the practicalities 
But one of the fascinating things that I hadn't realised and I discovered in the archive was from County Clare and County Galway that there was a band of professional abductors called the Terries, led by Terence O'Brien, who apparently would um, kind of steal away your love for a price, basically. (laughs) You know? Thanks, Terry. (laughs) Thanks, Terry. Yeah, so there's a recollection here from County Clare from um, Margaret Maloney, who was 65 um, or 70 when she was giving this piece of information to Sean O'Flanagan on the 23rd of May 1937. And she is basically describing, in my grandfather's house in the time of the Terries, um, there was a young lady called Miss McAllen, and she had a diary of £100, which was a significant amount. Yes, indeed. And in those days of the Terries, they would come if a girl took their fancy and steal her away. And so this woman now speaking um, to our collector remembers this woman being kind of kept almost under armed guard in her house so as not to be stolen away because she had taken a fancy or someone had taken a fancy to her. So the Terry's in County Clare and County Galway. And this is a recollection in 1937, but she's obviously remembering a time Mm -hmm. in her grandfather's house. Yeah. But um, again, not altogether so distant in the past. Mm. No, not at all. Um, Bizarre. I, I wasn't aware. I wasn't familiar with that at all. I should hope not, Johnny. No, well, yeah, the Terry's, good grief. Um, I suppose, is it worth delivering some abuse to those who refuse to take the plunge? Yes, absolutely. Should we? I feel like we should. Well, we'll, we'll probably one of them ourselves. Well, no, no, no forbid. <laughs> we won't be have, have, have ourselves coming from the scale exists. The, um, since the, as you mentioned, the kind of the traditional phase for marriage is Shrove. And at Lent, you can't marry. And so all across the country, there was there developed the practice on the Sunday before Lent of uh, kind of marking and abusing the unmarried mm. bachelors and the unmarried boys and girls in the, in the community, but also then the kind of older spinsters and crusty old bachelors and vinegary maids and so on. As yes, Kevin Donner mentioned. These people who, words, who, yeah. who is hilarious, but they, they kind of make up the, the comedy of life as he describes basically. And they would often be um, met with kind of, I suppose, chalk. They'd be chased and people would put chalk on, on the, the backs of the unmarried. Mm-hmm. In some instances um, in parts of the Midlands or parts of, of uh, Leitrim and places like this, salt was thrown. To preserve them. To preserve them, to keep them so that they'd keep until the next year. Um, ashes were sometimes put on people. Um, some people were rattled with the kind of stuff that was put on sheep, which wouldn't come out of your clothing at all. Were some taken and tied to things by In ropes? In Cork, people were taken and they were tied and they were paraded down the street and, they were t- and there was a list of passengers in the boat and the boat was said to be going to the Skelligs. And the Skelligs, I suppose, refers to Skellig Vihil, which mm. is a kind of pr- premonitory fort on a bloody rock sticking <laughs> out of the sea. An incre- incredible place built by... Um, Star Wars is filmed there, is that? Yes, the it features thing, yeah. there, yeah. Um, which I suppose is part of the kind of flourishing of monastic tradition that appeared in Ireland from the kind of 5th and 6th centuries on, whatever, where you had these monks living on their own ascetic tradition up on this um, rock, mm. on this fort, on this monastery, whatever. But it, the, the kind of rumour arose in folk tradition that there was an argument, I suppose, between the how time was reckoned on the mainland and on the island with the kind of conflict between the Gregorian and the Julian mm-hmm. uh, calendar, the earlier Julian calendar that the Gregorian kind of um, uh, replaced. And the idea was that if you weren't married by Shrove, um, you could travel to the Skelligs where it was technically two weeks in the past or 11 days in the past, mm-hmm. and you could get married there because it was still Lent hadn't, hadn't commenced there. So these Skelligs lists kind of appear and begin as, as, um, as lists of kind of body poems matching incongruous pairs mm. and this is like what you're mentioning what we were talking about before but how tradition applies a pressure to you it, it says it dictates this is what's correct and i suppose there's an aspect of kind of humorously but punishing those who, who don't take the plunge and so on mm. but interestingly there was also often those say an old man who would marry a young woman he was often met with with scorn from the community and there was the process called horning where they yes. would they would blow horns and so on and cause a racket because the, the condemnation that was being expressed was the idea that this man is going to die before his sons are raised and they're either going to be disinherited when she marries again or you're just going to have a widow with a lot of young, young sons and no and husband. No land, yeah. So, so the, the community kind of, it expresses its disquiet at certain arrangements through customary practice like Skellig's lists, like Chalk Sunday and so on and, and so on and so forth. Um, but there's a couple of, of pieces that we have on, on this. Uh, this is 
Mary Woods, um, and she's describing this practice of people being salted. Now you say that there was one, at least one, little trick played on somebody, we'll say, who didn't get married during Shrove. It was a very ugly trick. I wouldn't like it at all, but it just occurred to me now that the girl was salted, as you might say. That <laughs> not a salt. Yeah. <laughs> but salted. Mm. They said uh, she hadn't got married this time, and some few met her, and they had a, a bear of salt, you know, the, the stone, big stone bear of salt. And they had grated it and threw it at her and said, she'd keep until east. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of the tricks. There might be other ones now, but I don't know. I only heard of that one. So this is, that's the, the salting of, um, of the unmarried to, to, as to preserve them. And this is a, a kind of common practice. And the, and the writing of Skellig's List, such as these kind of body, humorous poems that were um, kind of composed in honour of these incongruous couples. Do you have a copy of them? Um, I do have one here that was actually available on duhus.ie, mm. our online platform. And again, if you pop on there and key in Skellig List, you'll actually get some, well, I say wonderful examples. Let's call them colourful. But one is giving, um, written for Dan Cronin, who's seen many a summer. In truth, we'll say 40 since he first read his primer. He searched all the country, in fact, spent his life in hope he could get a large fortune and wife. The bloom of his summer is now faded by. Twould be his best plan just to lie down and die. <laughs> oh, poor old Dan. And on and on and on it goes. And again, it kind of moves on to the next poor fella who is Joe, Joe O'Donnell. I can't make out that surname. Yeah. But on and on it goes. Again, matching up people with very ill-suited partners yeah. for them and just condemning them for not following the social contract. It's hilarious and awful. Um, here is... This is one. This is a lovely piece I found in the archive, edited together. This is Catherine Spillane, and she was originally from Castle Gregory in Tralee, and she's now living in Hollyoak, Massachusetts. This there was a series of recordings made by uh, our former director here, Professor Seamus O'Cahan, and a former sound archivist, Leo Cordoff, Mayoman. The two of them travelled around Massachusetts, Massachusetts specifically, I think, recording people who had, who had left Ireland and their memories and so on and so forth. Mm. And this woman from Kerry is describing that this girl exists, but she won't tell them. And <laughs> she's, she's talking about how she'll be carted off and arrested. And it's, it's a lovely piece, but here we are. Would you tell us about the Skellig lists, Catherine? <laughs> rogue. Never rogue again. <laughs> oh, I don't know. And, uh, what, and what did they do? Did they, did they make songs about people? Oh, yes, some cute ones, but I don't remember them now. If I ever stay, oh, no, I'd get arrested. I wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. They're nice. That's all right. It's, it's nice to... Um... Oh, I would be afraid of these. I tell you, what I do if someone came around here to me and wrote to me and told me? No. Oh, what did you do tell all, all them fellas? Don't worry about that. That's all right. You're safe enough. <laughs> and were they, did people sing them or did they just recite they them? They used to sing them, recite more, recite, but it was nice, just like a song, you know. And then they'd be going to some other places to, to parties, you know, they'd have parties and different things. And the fellow would stand out on the floor and start to sing the song. But that was home, everyone knew who it was, you um, know. Did the, did the people... Did... No, that isn't in this oh, country, no. dear, no. Will you not sing a verse? Oh, no, I'm not a good singer. Hello, either. Yeah. Just, just recite it. One of yeah. the recites. I give all my holdings. <laughs> 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 give us that one. Give us that one, Kate. No, I'm not going to give her nothing. I give all my holdings. Go ahead. Come on, everybody have that just one. Just that little one, you know. But all the money I have in the bank. <laughs> no. Will you write them out for us? I I will. I mail them to you. All right. <laughs> I'll mail them she to you. She held out. Yeah, she held out for her good name. Isn't it incredible how she keeps her accent after all those years? Yeah, away? that is amazing. Yeah. Oh, she's but she's so just sweet. she's so. Um, I mean, it's I'm sure it's kind of so innocuous by today's standards. But she absolutely kind of just. She's and that I've Refused. edited that a few bits out and she, they're gone for a while and coming back to it and she just she she won't and she won't, won't name the place and she won't and so on but, but those were kind of um, yeah a common a common kind of expression of, uh, humorous contempt I suppose mm -hmm. and young people could kind of take it, in their stride or it'd be humorous or, you know 
it's it's kind of it's fine but i suppose but for the older members of the community who hadn't married for whatever reason that's the thing that would kind of sting more in that sense you know yeah. and, and actually there's a brief piece i have here it's kind of unrelated i suppose but of lido holton again describing saint valentine's day mm-hmm. as, as a kind of obviously the common thing nowadays which i think is largely really an american import and a kind of relatively fabricated complicated holiday in its, in its origins in the sense that it was a kind of explicitly commercialized kind of drive to, mm-hmm. to get these things going as opposed to there were you know there's not an, an old devotion to the saint in this country that goes back no it's much newer although there are relics on white fire street that people actually visit in their droves uh, on valentine's day in hope of finding love and so on but lido holton is describing the she's asked about valentine's day in her time this is from the urban folklore project recorded in 1980 but every tuesday now is saint anthony's day we always give her a go up and light our lamp or our candle yeah. We honour them. I pray to her very much. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. St. Anthony. So today now is the 14th of February, St. Valentine's Day. Used to celebrate St. Valentine's? Not at all. Never heard of it. No? Never heard of it until this new generation has come in. With the cards? With that. the cards. Never heard of it. Mm-hmm. And there was never Christmas cards when I was young. Mm-hmm. And how about on Candlemas Day, the 2nd of February? Or the purification. That's, that's the blessing of the candle. Yeah. Yes, we go with that. So, yeah. marriage luck is, we wanted to do this for one of our loyal listeners, didn't we, who was very kind in coming back to us with some feedback and some suggestions of what he would like to um, hear on, in Blurney Belagish. And it turns out that he has the very good fortune of having become engaged recently and will be married later in the year. So that is Adonal Kearney, who we are very grateful that he continues to listen. Indeed. And we hope that he and his partner are incredibly happy and wish them every great luck for indeed. a long, peaceful, happy, healthy life. I found a charm for him in Undundra. Uh, this is Urta Sharka Agashir for a charm for love and lasting affection, which he, he can employ. It says, Urta Akhirmerja in him, Urta Sharka is Shir for our stad of the Chulun, Achtarava Urum. So a charm for lasting, love and lasting affection. The charm Mary put on the butter is the charm for love and lasting affection. May your body not cease to pay me attention. May your love follow my face as the cow follows the calf from today till the day I die. Huzzah. Oh, like that. that'll that's do quite that. nice. Have we just officiated in marriage care? Oh, well, if the podcast doesn't work out, we can always... True enough. Um, open a franchise. Shall we, shall we leave it there? I think we'll leave on that positive note. Hmm. And wish Donald and his lovely partner well. Mm-hmm. Good day, Shislam. This is um, Mrs. McLaughlin, and this was recorded in Ross Gray in Tipperary, nineteen eighty four. The Banks of the Roses, a beautiful little song. Is this a positive song? It is. It's a lovely Excellent. little song. It's Excellent. a lovely. Little, I love this song, and she's being helped along by um, maybe I don't know her friends or whoever are with her, but but uh, we shall leave you with this happy wee note and see you next month. That's why I heard you. So on.
Indeed, I am no drunkard, and very well it's known. I can drink if I like, love, or leave it alone. And if your parents dead or like you, they can give you a tone. And it's then I look out for another. These parents, they got married, as we hear the people say, they may take another road on the very next day. Making providence direct them and guide them the right way, and adieu to the banks of the roses. I think that's it. I'm that's sure. grand now. That's lovely now. Yeah, sure, be there it is. Did we leave a significant gap so you can edit this out? We can't. Right. This is all going in. <laughs> I've decided to stop <laughs> editing everything. I just want for, for clarity and Director's authenticity. Director's Yeah, I've decided that I'm not going to edit anything out anymore because people need to know, frankly, how difficult it is, Claire, <laughs> to do this podcast with you every week or however often it is. Every, every month. So this is all going in. Lovely, lovely. That'll be us now. Fire in the morning.